This is Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. And thank you for joining me, Mike Dilk, on the Relax Back UK show here on UK Health Radio, your global real feel-good radio station. This week's show is about comedy and how being a comedian or writing comedy can be very demanding and the issues that it can lead to. You, when you do comedy, um, people who um, don't like it, they never just say, well, that guy's not for me. They go, I hate that guy. My guest is John Hopkins of Big Face TV. He has done a lot, is still doing an awful lot in his career, as you're here, and he's worked as a comedian and a, and a writer. We explore some of the difficulties involved, health and mental health challenges, and also a bit how we consume the product of just having a good laugh and what that means for the industry in these COVID times and beyond. So please do join me for a great show. Thank you. Daddy. Lockdown and COVID has had a major effect on, on all of us, really. And, and there's been some effects that have been bad, obviously, and some that have been kind of a bit better. And a nice one for me has been engaging a little bit more with my neighbours. John Hopkins lives around the corner from me, and he's one of those guys that for a while, for what, years really, I've been nodding to and saying hi I took the opportunity to start chatting to him and I invited him, invited him into the house and he's a truly interesting guy. So he came in for a chat. It took a moment to set things up and I, I left some of that stuff in. Uh, you'll, you'll see what I mean. Excellent. Right, so I'm here drinking a glass of wine with my neighbour, John. Cheers, John. Cheers. And John, I've got a suspicion, is one of those people that every time, you, every time I talk to you, I'm going to find out something else fascinating or interesting oh. that you've done in your life so does is that bigging you up too much uh, um, my first ever gig was with red sea hunter we're going to stop a minute and just have a bit of a sound check see if that's working all right okay so right, so one two three four, four. okay so that's it's yeah it's a bit low isn't it maybe i need to be sitting we need to be sitting in front of it is it directional i think oh, i suppose it must be but I talk to the light. Okay. We've, we've moved things around a bit, and John is practically sitting on my uh, my lap now. Yeah, uh, which so is very you. nice <laughs> and cosy. It is very nice and cosy. And thank I you for the little kiss you gave me before we started. You're very welcome. I'm just going to have another little glass of wine. Another Cheers. little sip of wine. Cheers. How oh, nice. I mean, the sun's gone over the yard. <laughs> um, it is 11 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> Right, so the reason I dragged you here to yeah. my to my house, and I, I, yeah. I will show you around the house a bit later, yeah. is because so I had the impression that you you worked as a comic. Now you were just saying that you're not you weren't really a stand up comic. No, you, you were part of that world. I was a comic. I mean, I basically I was I worked I I I, I wanted to work in. I, I just loved film, and then I just decided, and then I and I had a little coffee van in North London. And I, yeah, I said every time I was going to talk to you, I'd find out something else that was kind of well. You know, those little coffee vans uh, that you get at Vespa Piaggio vans. Yeah, there's a lady around the corner that's got one. Well, I invented those, <laughs> yeah. okay. So, I, me and my cousin Guy, we 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 set the, the 
the first ones up and we had them made at the carriage makers we import and we got six of them over and we um and that's where I, when i first moved i lived in paris for five years kind of messing around and having fun and um came back to england to do that because i had no other reason to come back to england and then we decided to do that and anyway i was working on that and uh, i was doing that you know serving coffee on the street uh, in islington um every morning and um and then I heard about an internship at Miramax Films, Harvey Weinstein. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he's my kind of man, you know. <laughs> I love Harvey. I don't know what they're saying. No, please. Um, one, Zelda, in fact, who is one of the girls, one of my best friends, oldest friends, who is the girl who broke her NDNA. NDA for NDNA? Um, uh, for Harvey Weinstein, you know, and managed to have him put away. All right. So anyway, uh, I, I, and while I was working there, I then, you know, I, then, I did an internship and then started working, uh, and then from there I got work in film, and wanted to direct, uh, but it was great fun being Miramax because it, you know they were winning twenty Oscars a year at the time, so I was at the epicenter of it, and I wanted to direct. I was working for another director called Ian Softly, and I. Um, and I just bought a camera to practice. And right. then with, the, with that camera, I didn't know any actors, obviously. I only knew quite famous actors. It wouldn't have anything to do with a youth like me. And um, So is this ancient history? This is ancient history. Okay. And so then, this is like 20 years ago, 30 years ago? This is 1996, okay. seven, yeah. something like that. Uh, and then uh, and, and I, um, yeah, I bought a camera. And so my instincts, though, was to make because I wanted to learn how to edit. Max had come on to the scene. You could have a edit, you could edit video at home. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I wanted to buy, you know, so I wanted to direct stuff. I wanted to make films. That was my sort of asp vague aspiration. And uh, so, and, and the first things I made, basically, I didn't know any act actors. I made them with Sharon Horgan, who wrote, you know, Pulling and the Stars in Pulling and Catastrophe and those things. And we made, um, we just made a load of sketches that we put online and submitted to the BBC and we won the BBC New Comedy Awards. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So as, uh, yeah, as writer, performers. Okay. So you, do, you, you know, you do have some standing in this stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I don't know if it's standing. I thought I had standing when I won the BBC New Comedy Awards and they said things like, don't, now don't sign anything, whatever you do. Just be really careful because, you know, they're going to come sweeping. About a year later, you know, I'd written a sitcom and some this very famous producer called Kenton Allen had sort of supported us and given us money to, but couldn't get us on television, put his own money into it. Um, and, uh, and you know, so I was going, well, you know, suddenly, and then I thought, well, we can't perform, we, you know, no one's going to, no one believes that we can do this. We can act our own sitcom. So we started putting, so we started, we decided we we're going to do some live gigs. We were, so we quickly wrote some sketches and then suddenly, I think it was our first gig or our second, but it was pretty much our first one. And this producer just turned up at the show, was looking for new acts or acts that were on the scene. And he mistook us for someone who knew what they were doing. For, we're me and a mate of mine in a double act. Yes. I mean, fake it till you make it. Yeah, and yeah. put it in this show. Put, put us in this show called Ealing Live at Ealing Studios, 
which became a bit of a cult hit. All right. With people like Simon Farnaby and Miranda Hart, Simon Farnaby, and all most of the cast of Horrible Histories and God, you you name it. You know, they were like Jimmy Carr. You know, we yeah, were. It was so like, I've heard of some of these people. Yeah, but I'm not really well versed in this world, but. There are some names you mentioned that. Yeah, I, there's I, a I, lot of. Across. I could name drop some, you know, people who've gone on to do much bigger things than I ever did. But, um, uh, but yeah, so I was a comedian for for a long period. I, it was like a Labrador being thrown a bone, you know. I, I sort of <laughs> hadn't made a decision to be a a comedian, you know, but someone just chucked that bone. I went. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. But so, I mean, what I'm keen to just make you mull over, if you can bear yeah. it. Actually, it's not a very easy life being a, being no. a comedian. It, it, it's well, it's good fun, you know, while you're young, but there's a lot of drink involved. If you're a drinker, I'm a drinker. I mean, I'm not a heavy drinker. I know I bought a bottle of wine around, and that's because you felt like a drink. I felt no. It, now I sound like I'm protesting too much. Like uh, <laughs> uh, the lifestyle, I didn't, I didn't like that much because you know you go out, you do a gig, you're absolutely <laughs> gend up. Cause it, went well i was very lucky that it all apart from one time which I, you can t- I can tell you about it went well and i just was suddenly working with the best people around as far as i could see and well it was they were and you know i was in sh- a show and i was being you know lauded as a you know talent and is uh, it possible to kind of describe the buzz because there must be if a show goes well and, you, and you've made you know a whole well, audience laugh no, Thanks there's nothing like great. it's great because you write stuff generally. It's great fun writing with someone. I was in a double, I was in several double A's, but um, and writing with people and you know, Ealing Live was a big gang show, you know, with great comedians and writers, and we'd all do these sketches and the whole show would all add, add up. But when you put you know, you write stuff, you come with stuff, you're making each other laugh, and then you go and do it, and the room goes mental, and you think. Yeah, we cracked it. I mean, for me, you know, and I remembered the lines, you know, <laughs> um, which was always an issue for me. Did, did you ever forget them? Oh, yeah, but you don't sort of... Well, I used to, I had a trick of writing sketches which were quite complicated to perform, which was part of the joke of it, was that I had one called Penchansky and Kowalski, which you can see online if you look hard enough. Which is basically a tongue, a, a, a cop, and a you know, and a. I'll put, sus- a, I'll put a link to it. On yeah, my and a suspect basically, and the 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 joke the, that starts off, you know, listen, Panchansky, you know, Peter Piper picked his peck of pickled pepper. Where's the peck of pickled pepper, Peter Piper picked? And don't try to screw me in the A. I'm this, you know, and he goes, listen, if, I I didn't pick no, you know, and so it goes on like that until it becomes this sort of five minute tongue twister <laughs> at the end I have to get the whole thing <laughs> recap the whole thing without making a mistake and so that was all about remembering everything and then another one I did was called the Cowboys which I sort of ended up doing in front of people like Prince Harry and Elton John and crazy people like that it was a sort of big hit for me and a guy called Gareth Donnelly and we did it, it were they a good audience did they appreciate they were they were those people those, yeah they were great Prince Harry and because we took the piss out of him, you know, because when I say remembering the lines, you had to sort of out-root and toot the previous person and say, well, I got, you know, I got this here pair of boots from a young guy called Prince Harry. You know, <laughs> Prince Harry gave me them their boots. You know, uh, yeah, you know, what's he like? You know, you know Prince Harry? You know, a couple of cowpokes sitting in a field. 
and it would be um, along the lines of, you know, yeah, well, well, if you know him so well, what's he like? Then it'd be, well, Prince Harris won't boot and toot and cut and pick and bong, <laughs> token, reefer rolling, booze drinking, you know, and it would go on like that. You'd have to do all these whoop and tootins. And you'd, but you'd have to do it longer than the last person, otherwise the sketch wouldn't work. And the tension was all about remembering uh, lines. So uh, I would turn up on TV sets to do comedy, because then when you start doing comedy, you end up in television things. And um, uh, and I would find it absolutely terrifying. And you know, to just remember the line. I remember what, all I had to say once was, "I cannot believe I'm such a massive bellend." <laughs> and um, uh, and I just couldn't remember the line. I just kept saying, I have no, I I cannot believe, and all these sort of comedians looking at me, you know, who are mates of mine, killing themselves laughing. In fact, this producer just made a, an outtake wheel to humiliate <laughs> me, which went on for about five minutes. All I had to do, you know, and there's money dripping down, down, down the line, you know, of course, yeah. this whole crew, Time's you know, nice. waiting, yeah. And you're just sort of crying with laughter. You can't get it right. And... I mean, the, the other side of the coin, mm. you know, it, it's there's a great buzz. The other side of the coin is kind of if it, if you do something wrong or you forget your lines, very scary. So there's got well, to be an element of why put yourself through that. It's like either really good or, uh, uh, well, there is an element of that, and of course you're that sort of drives you to get it right. And as I say, I was sort of quite lucky. In that I got it right most of the time, and that or all of the time except for one time that I can remember. And then towards the end of my sort of do it of doing it, you know, going out and doing new material and sort of going to clubs and or being you know being hired as a comedian, I would I lost my fear of audiences, and so yeah. I got quite lazy. But in turn, if you want to sort of dig into mental health and what it's like to be a comedian and do comedians as a rule have uh you know is there is is there a higher instance of bad mental health well look it's a challenging thing and as i've got older and i've realized that actually a lot more people are concealing bad mental health situations (laughs) as you uh, you know you don't have to be a comedian to do that no you don't we all do exactly exactly so um and people are you know it's it's quite a it's quite positive that the attitude towards that talking about it i mean i'm on citalopram as a, a you know i'm a, i have a, i'm on antidepressants i have been through a tough time in that my son was born you know with a birth um with um three years ago with you know he had a birth injury uh my father you know so he has cerebral palsy and that with you know with that sort of thing you just you know you don't you just don't they just say we don't know what's the outcome will be for, for that child and then my father died my stepfather died my father died my best friend died another friend of mine died you know and it was sort of like this sort of a, lot going on. a cavalcade of cadavers um around me and death so i'm on antidepressants at the moment and i've been on them before and i say it is a personal thing doing comedy right you know so there's a you when you do comedy um, people who um, don't like it, they never just say, well, that guy's not for me. They go, I hate that guy. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a really strange... Sort yeah, why of, is that? That's I don't know. I don't know. 
I suppose because people put them out there as entertainers. I, I think it's a little bit about being the sort of the kid who thinks he's funny in the class and he's yeah. not. Everyone finds that person annoying. Musicians don't get that, do they? No. If you don't they, like songs of music, you just don't listen yeah, to it. I mean, no, not really. You get people... It's unfair. Yes, it's fair. <laughs> I think it is. Yeah. But I did it myself. So I, I would be, you know, in the comedy scene and, I, and people's comedy was so bad I couldn't help but, you know, not like them. Right. And it's absolutely absurd and, and it's quite an unhealthy way to live your life. And, and you know, so it, it's... It, I tried to not do it in later life. I mean, you sort of catch me in this podcast trying to sort of, in a quite happy place, I, you know, um, and sort of working on myself, you know, trying to notice cycles of bad behaviour. And I've gone through these before. Before, I think we all should. But I'm diverting a little bit. If you talk about, if you, if we go back to talking about comedy and mental health and comedy, so if you imagine, you know, you 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 know, you're about to walk into a room. And it could be like a thousand people. It could be forty people. It could be three people in a club, um, and you know, depending on what the venue is, or it could be like a, you know, a, a, you know, it could be every famous person you ever thought of sitting in someone's front room, and you're about a foot away from them. And you've got to come on as a character and do, you know, do your thing. Um, that's a lot of pressure. So when it goes right, you're g'd up, you know. Yeah. You're, 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 and then you go and you what? What you want to have is have a drink, and uh, you have a drink, and then the next day you're exhausted and a bit hungover, and you probably got to go and do it again. Mm-hmm. You have another drink, and that night because it's the only way to calm down and get any sleep. But you get overexcited because you've had a great night. You know, people have been cheering you. And it's just hard to come down. It's, it's so really exciting. hard to come down. It's really exciting and it's really good fun. And it's also very personal because anything you write that's comedy, it's supposed to be funny, is a very personal thing. People go, come on, it's not personal. Well, it is personal. It's the one of the most, you know, you're writing stuff down, particularly if you're not writing in a double act and you've got no idea whether you're just a madman rambling on your own, <laughs> writing down the sort of spew of your brain, thinking, this is funny. And then, yeah, writing without bouncing stuff off someone yeah. must be extremely difficult. I found that really difficult. And in fact, I've always been a sort of, you know, someone trying, you know, I, I have to have a deadline, you know, and a commission, and I've got to hand it in. Mm. And I, yeah, uh, uh, and that's when I, I can do it. Because, I, you know, someone's paid me, well, and I'm going to get the other half of the money for the script or whatever it is when I hand it in and I need to pay my rent. You know <laughs> what I mean? And that and yeah. suddenly, and that, that just makes you just do it. When did you start this life? Because it's, it, it is a complete life. It's not just a job, is it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. A complete, well, look, I mean, you sort of become a comedian. As I say, for me, it was, it was quite accidental winning that BBC New Comedy Awards. The stuff I made was funny. People always said I was a funny person. I'm not being very funny today. People always said, you know, you're funny. You're fu-, you know, I knew I could make. I didn't chat to you. I didn't invite you along to be funny. No, 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 no. I'm not expecting. Okay, okay, okay. good, good, because <laughs> I haven't got the material. Um, but uh, people, you know, my natural instinct at school or to survive and all those things was to be funny. My whole family is all about telling jokes and you know the one you know there's always some drunk uncle who wants to do a joke uh, you know 
kind of joke. In the Midlands, it's Anok and Eli jokes, you, you know. Um, I haven't heard of them. Anok and Eli. Oh, no idea what that is. Anok and Eli, the sort of, you know, Paddy and Murphy of the Midlands. Okay. They're okay. sort of, you know, it's like, um, well, Eli, you know, you're coming round to our house, are you, mate? You know, for the, I've, I've heard you're having a party, Eli. Anok says, oh, oh, I'm having a party, like, but if you want to come round, uh, you know, you want to open the gate with your bum. And you want to go up the path, but don't open the front door because you'll find it's a bit stuck because we've got a piano in front of it. You want to go around the sides, you know. And this, the, the gate there's a little bit uh, stuck, so just give it a kick with your feet and then open it with your bum. And then go around the back and, um, you know, then knock on the door with your forehead, you know, and uh, and I'll open the door. He says, all right, it sounds nice. Why is all this, you know, open it with your feet and, you know, knock it with your bum? He says, well, you're not coming empty-handed, are you? <laughs> and it's that kind of it's that kind of they're just sort of you know two hapless characters who are you know who are sort of always on the make and trying to get something in. so there's so the, all that kind of joking and raconteuring and my father sort of did things like he played the guitar for Charlie with Charlie Chaplin at a party and he was a sort of he was a joke teller he knew jokes for everything and for you know it was this thing that you know he was a raconteur. So it's in so the genes. It's, it's, it's in the it's in the blood, yeah. And he actually came to Ealing Live and did a show. He got the only ever standing ovation. Um, at what? At, at Ealing Live, which is the gang show that I was telling you about. Oh my goodness. Yeah, and um, he's dead now. But and, and that night he met Ronnie Corbett, who was in the audience. Uh, and so your dad played there before you did. No, no, no. I'm saying that when my dad was young, he he played. He was a sort of Playboy-style character on a yacht in the Mediterranean after the war and an adventure with his best pal, Neville. And they had these sort of silk dressing gowns and a very small, shitty yacht that they would, you know, just people around, you know, go around the Mediterranean and chatting up women. And but it was, quite fun to me. Yeah, it sounds great fun. But um, And so in, in that romantic post-war life around the Mediterranean, you know, pre-Bridget Bardot, he was, uh, you know, he had a silk dressing gown, which he was very proud of, and he would, uh, that, you know, it was that sort of thing, appearances or everything. And he, he sort of ended up playing the guitar for Charlie Chaplin, as he was the guest of honour at a party, docking next to Errol Flynn, you know, on, who was super yacht, who sort of shadowed them, and that sort of thing. So, and he had a lot of stories, was just a jokes man. I can't remember how we got onto all this. But I was furiously trying to remember. Well, it's in the blood. So you're talking about, is, uh, I think it's something to do with being in the blood. And we were talking about the lifestyle yeah. of, of um, being a comedian. It's a tough one if you're not very disciplined. And I'm not very disciplined. I'm also very thin-skinned, I realised. I... Um, yeah, well, if somebody you're did a heckler, no, I was no, I never really got heckled. I I had this very lucky thing, and this sounds incredibly arrogant, but it's just a fact that people liked me when I walked on stage. Yeah. So I had a sort of, for some unknown reason, it's completely nonsensical. There were comedians who were much more technical and brilliant, and you know, uh, but I had a thing where I could walk on, and they just liked me. So I could get away with stuff and be more lazy, and um, and I was. Um, uh, but 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 when I'm talking about, if you imagine, so your whole life is about writing comedy and doing comedy, you're going out to gigs, and then suddenly you get opportunities. So a TV 
executive or a commissioner or a producer turns up and says, uh, we think you're amazing. We want to try and make a TV pilot with you. We're going to, you know, let's put something together. We'll put it in. And then, then it goes to the channel and the channel says, you know, here's your, you know, we really like you guys. We're going to come down and see you do it. So you do a live show in front of, you know, TV executives. And then they go, this is fantastic. You guys are, are the most funny thing. You know, I mean, I don't introduce it to my wife. You're that funny. Eh? <laughs> and, um, you know, literally people will be like, putting this, speaks, this guy's the funniest guy, you know, and you're, you're thinking, fly me, and then you think, I think I'm making it here. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, it's gonna happen. So, so this was your life. This and was then, your, then your world. Yeah. Then you make okay. a thing, and the whole, um, yeah, this was my life. And then suddenly you make this pilot, you know, and it's for ITV or BBC or Channel Four, whatever. And you, you put everything into it, and probably too much because it's all because you, absolutely was gonna swear then because you're broke, because you know doing the gigs is not really a great living. It's uh, hard work, and it's really hard work. Yeah. And if you're a bit lazy like I am, you don't, you know, uh, you you know, writing new, you know, you you also, you know, you, trying out new stuff is what the way to sort of generate a whole bank of material. But if you're sort of paid to turn up to a gig, the the sort of thing is, they want you to turn up because they know you're good and you've got to do your stuff that hits, right? So then you end up being a bit lazy. We we'll go, I'm just going to turn up and do my old stuff. And then anyway, we're getting back to this whole thing of making TV pilots. Yeah. Is that and then this is I I'm suddenly I could be I have a TV show on BBC and you know my life could change. And suddenly from there I'd be paid to do things, you know, and I'd have loads of money and you know, and suddenly you start checking everything at it, you get over worried, and then you you are back to square one because your pilot didn't go. And it can be for no good reason. It could be just that the scheduler didn't like it, although the whole of the rest of the channel liked it, or the um, and then you just feel absolutely like, well, when that energy, the amount of energy I've put into creating this thing, it's just failed, you know, for no, you know, for you know, okay, we made mistakes, or oh, I thought, oh, I thought this was really good, and maybe this is, you know, but generally it's because you made a few mistakes. And it was through a period of time in history, in TV history, where, you know, you would get a chance to do something and then people would nurture you on. But, you know, people would just, TV people off, very often don't have the, particularly, uh, you know, the, some of them are fantastic, but some some people are, are all about, they, cut, they, have, they, they don't nurture you in any way. So you're out on your own. Sure. There's no nurturing. I think you, if you see... The woman, uh, I forget her name, this fantastic woman who wrote um, I May Destroy You in Chewing Gum. But she talks about being left out, you know, with no script editor, no nothing, you know. And I, I remember one of my scripts just being a sitcom, you know, and that takes a hell of a lot to write. But I'd written not even for me to be in it, but a script crumb that I was really proud of. Um, and the guy killed it dead because I'd been commissioned two scripts to write. One by in a meeting with the channel controller, and one with the head of comedy at the BBC, and I'd given the one, and but the money came from the BBC, although it was through him. It wouldn't, I wouldn't have had the money if the controller hadn't get, put the money. And so, I, the scripts I wrote for him, I gave to him and went to see him, mm-hmm. and I got the commission by going to see the controller. Then the other script I gave to hit to the head of comedy, and the the, the head of comedy was so sort of miffed about that i'd apparently overstepped some hierarchical thing that he just said 
he killed the script dead with no feedback. He had didn't even read it. He just said, "We're not going to pursue this anymore." And so, it's that. So your so your life can be, you know, just through some tiny bottleneck of yeah. some ego that you've just fucked up for no good reason. You've just fucked up a, a, a political thing that you hadn't. You're just a young guy clumsily trying to make it. I don't know about corporations and all that sort of stuff. You're just trying to work really hard and give something good. And they say, and I would find it so personally difficult. Right. You're broke. You know, you're absolutely broke. And somebody is, and you've worked your absolute self to the bone. You know, you 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 can't write a script without you or anything. You can't write anything good without it being. You know, without really going over it and thinking every character through, thinking every storyline, making it satisfying, thinking about those things. You say what you you need, well, you need talent, so you need to be good, but you need a bit of luck on your side as well. You need a bit of luck, but you also need you you need hard work. Yeah. You've got to just work. But the but when but that doesn't always pay off in the bit in that business. And so, yeah. in terms of mental health. I remember sort of getting close to sort of having my own things and um, on TV or whatever, which would have been life changing. I was on TV and various other people's things like the IT crowd or the mighty boosh. But, um, you know, and I still get paid for those things. You know, they get, I still get residuals are really nice, you know, and they're people I admire and I'm very proud to be associated with them in a very small way. Are you ever tempted to kind of... Give it another go because I know you're. I know you're yeah, doing I mean, lots I, of other things now, and you're. You know, well, I'm. Done, well, I, I sort of. Well, I had my son Bo, who then, um, who and, and the trauma of him being injured at birth. You know, as he, I mean, he was perfect before he he tried to make his way out, mm-hmm. and that sort of so, so cerebral palsy. He was dead on the floor of the, of the uh, room. You know, they were pumping and you know doing CPR and. It, baby that's just been born you can imagine that we're yeah. just using one forefinger and pressing his little body and he came to you know they try you know he'd inhaled his first poo because he got stuck in the birth passage on the way out and and then you know and then the the all the stress of that and, and adapting to life and readapting to the vision of what your life can be or is going to be or what you thought it was going to be, mourning the loss of the life you thought you were going to have and actually, you know, there's a, in a spiritual way, and I think it's something that helped me, and we talked about this earlier with your uh, wife, a spiritual way is that I've learned is that, and it's a very Buddhist thing, and it's, and Eckhart Tolle is all about this, you know, this power of now, which is very fashionable, but it's very powerful, which is to let go of the visions that you have of your future. The future doesn't exist. If you've got this vision of where you want to be, which is what comedy induces in you. I mean, if you want to make money, you've got to go on the television, you've got to have a profile, then you've got to get to a certain point, right? And that becomes this fixated thing, which just leads to disappointment and tire. You know, if you let go of that vision and do it for the sake of the present and do it for the sake of enjoying it and live your life like that, you know, then you won't, then mental health will, will, be, will, will suffer less. I used to listen to this. I got into sort of spiritual stuff. I'm not saying I'm a big spiritual guy. You know, I don't put yoni eggs up my jersey. <laughs> but um, uh, but I am interested, obviously, in ways to cope with life and yeah. big things. Power of now, 
you know, stuff is quite powerful. But I got into Buddhism through. No, that's right. Well, the reason why I was what I was trying to say was I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a big spiritual guy, and I'm not sticking yoni eggs up my jacksy, and I don't, you know, I do love those people. I find them sometimes a little tiring, and when their eyes are closed and they're talking too loud, you're about what, two. How are you getting on? It's so good to see you. Well, you can't see me. Your eyes are closed. Why are you talking to me with your eyes closed? Those people. I think they're a lot more tolerant than I am because actually I don't want to smack those people. Yeah. Well, I mean. <laughs> I, I do have, I'm, I'm hoping to try and write a feature film, which is a bit of a sort of mistake of, of all of that, but it's it's finding the right character for it. Uh, but I, I sort of dabbled in all of that stuff. But, but I was talking about trying to sort of, the difference between letting go of this vision of yourself in the future in terms of helping your mental health and dealing with life. And, um, you know, I've dealt with a lot, particularly in the recent years, and being a comedian facing, you know, endless disappointment for no logical reason often, um, was that um, I started, I got into spirituality through self-help. When I say got into spirituality, I keep trying to say I'm not like a, I'm not like a very spiritual person at all, but I got into learning, okay, or trying to sort myself out, and 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 then got into Buddhism. But I got into Buddhism when it started by listening to um, self-help things like Paul McKenna's instant confidence. Okay. And it's almost the very opposite doing those tapes of what Buddhism tells you. It's imagine yourself as how you want to be and picture it, create that image in your head. And I would picture myself on a yacht, you know, with flowing golden locks and, mm-hmm. you know, looking rich and, you know, happy and uh, on a massive yacht, you know, like something out of a Duran Duran video. You know, and I know the video. Yeah, saying, yeah, 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 yeah. I think we're the same age. Yeah, <laughs> we are. Yeah, we are. And uh, I would look at that. Um, uh, I would see that vision of myself, and you know that, and that's how you would how you would manifest your future with this sort of ridiculous Paul, sure. Paul McKenna in my whisper in your ears, and so you know, <laughs> and you put these tapes on. And I, that's exactly the wrong thing to do. The thing is to have an idea and a plan. But to be open to that the journey may not be exactly what you expected and to be open to taking a different course. Well, I always think the good thing about a plan Mm. is that, you know, it can change. The plan does not have to be set in stone. Yes, unless it's the (laughs) Schlieffen plan. I don't don't know, I've gone into, uh, you know, Hitler's (laughs) invasion of France and I don't know anything about it. I'm just trying to remember something from my O-levels. Any plan I can remember. Let's let come back more in, into the present a little bit, and as, as Eckhart told us, yeah, and about lockdown and comedy. So, because yeah. I sometimes I like to talk about how the lockdown has changed our habits, things mm. we do. Now, it's changed the way people kind of engage with comedy because you can't go to a comedy club. No, and that that worries me for comedians. Yeah, yeah. So what? What is the future? People are going to have to get used to. I haven't got a clue, really. Online. I think first of all, I mean, this is just now, and it's a it's a brief period in history where theatres are going to face the toughest time in centuries, you know, because people will not be able to go. But there are things that are going to happen. COVID is going to become part of life and an accepted part of life or, you know, there may be a vaccine 
I know that uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine's husband invented a in in Austria uh, a um, a test for COVID that you get the results in ten minutes, which means that, for example, you want to go to the theatre, you turn up at the door, you do a spit test, and they can tell you whether you come in or not, because wow. you like you know. So so there are bits of technology happening. Life will will resume, I think. But at the moment, you know, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. I think we've all got used to the way we see people on the news talking from their front rooms, most often in front of their bookshelves to look clever. But they, you know, we've all got used to seeing Skype on TV and uh, and, and Zoom, you know, standard sure, broadcasts. Yeah. And I think we actually will find it comforting and, and accepting. I mean, I've never understood why more stuff you know, major films are made on telephone, you know, on phones. The te- do, you, do you think we'll see comics on Zoom then? Do you think it's going to happen? Well, that's happening that's already, isn't is it? it? You know, I mean, it's happening on telly, you know, people are All doing, right. you know, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and uh, and people are doing gigs from their front rooms in the same way that ma- magicians are, uh, mu- not magicians, musicians. Maybe that as well. I'm sure there's a few magicians <laughs> up to no good committing <laughs> entertainment sins. <laughs> But, um, Are you not a fan of oh, I mean, uh, I, I'm obviously uh, no. I, I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not against. I'm not against it. I mean, it's a very tricky thing to do originally. Yeah, sure, so sure. you know, I am. I'm a fan of Penn and Teller. They were, you know, they were, because they were breaking all the rules. I, you know, I just find it's great to see a, a size of hanging person rise up close. Yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. Yeah. Okay, so when when we have these um, comics on on Zoom or whatever it's going to be or, or is at the minute. I was just thinking, you know, because we've been watching football without any crowds yeah. and they put in fake crowd noises. Yeah. Is someone going to be putting in fake crowd noises? I don't think you can do that with, with comedy. I mean, well, hang on a minute. I'm just going to pedal back there because, you know, sitcoms have had canned laughter for, for, for years and years, but that's become very unfashionable. But... The canned laughter thing did work in that, that people need a subconscious elbow to or a little nudge to go, that, that was that was a joke. And and somehow it has worked. Although it's I don't got, find it annoying. Some people hate it. Well, you do, well it's I rare now. I don't even notice it. Well, yeah. I think it was like the 70s and 80s, I think, that, that you know, canned laughter was, a, was sort of an accepted way of going about um, making, uh, making uh, sitcoms. But... But comedy, stand-up comedy, you can't have. You, you'd have, you know, you can't have that kind of that kind of. Um, you can't just do a straight stand-up gig down the lens. I don't think without an audience, because stand-up is all about a good stand-up. It's, it's about the, uh, the the good stand-up understands his audience, gets the, reads the room, plays off it, allows for play. You know allows for for improvisation and for things to happen and um so there are just different ways of doing comedy so i mean like i I got into it by putting stuff online and people will express their comedy chops by doing you know making things making podcasts you know talking to people 
uh, you know, like we're doing now, but more entertainingly. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, and they will they will find ways around, and and, and you know, creative uh, necessity is the mother of invention. You know, so yeah. I'm sure great things will come out of this, but I firmly believe it will all resume. And you know, but that, these could be, you know, who knows? Who, who knows what will happen? And it'll be a while yet as well. So it will be. Who... A lot of people, you know, there's a lot of comics who are just thinking, well. I have no livelihood. I suddenly have. I don't know what else I can do. I mean, a lot of comics are also writers and providing. providing. I do worry about a lot of my pals and people I, who are acquaintances of mine who are, you know, but now productions are going back in into production. People are starting to make stuff again. Right. But the people who are the pure stand-ups whose life is to do the circuits, um, and uh you know are not on panel shows for example they are you know going to be absolutely stuffed they're in trouble they're, they're in trouble, trouble for yeah. a bit yeah yeah and oh. I, god bless them i hope they they, they get through and they now but it'll for those people are incredibly creative and and driven you know you have they to will be, find a way they'll find a way to do to 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 create basically and it might not just be the this medium that they've been Getting better and better at slowly and slowly, day but you know, gig by gig, What's the craft, mile by it? mile. What's the yeah. classic phrase? Hang your craft. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, who makes you laugh at the minute? If you if you need a laugh, what do you do? Oh, oh. I mean, look, um, a lot of people make me laugh. I've got so many incredibly funny friends. Yeah, by the sounds of things, you just ring up some of your old friends. Well, so you 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 know, you, it's a bit easier for you. It's funny actually, as a comedian, as an well, I remember when I was doing comedy, and my sister said to me, um, "You were so funny until you started doing comedy." <laughs> and uh, it's true that that makes you sort of a bit more. It makes you a bit more serious for some reason, and a bit less ready to laugh. Um, who makes me laugh now, like current, I mean, everybody, I don't know anyone who doesn't think Ricky Gervais is incredibly funny and clever, and clever. I think, really? I, I really think. Well, the only one that finds his points in fact, I think he's Are doing, no, I think that's, I don't, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say as a comedian that I think he's brilliant, but actually he is. And I sat at, I used to have the same agent as him, I used to sit at a table with him, you know, after, you know, a gig or something, and he would hold forth, and he's just one of the naturally funniest people I've ever met. Simon Farnaby, who wrote um, Paddington 2 now, so that, um, and, uh, and uh, who is also in Horrible Histories and wrote Ghosts, some, which is, I think, the BBC ones now, co-wrote with all that crew, who are all in Ealing Live, by the way. Simon Farnaby is one of the naturally most funny people a lot of my pals are very funny people uh and uh but often and some of them aren't anything to do with comedy no right. <laughs> yeah, i just uh, I, you know who doesn't like good company right well what about what about um comedy in in politics so this is this is a bit off off the wall i do understand but it was kind of intrigued me because the ukraine well there's boris johnson well, yeah, I, I knew you were going to say that, but the Ukraine have actually elected a real live comic as a prime minister. Yeah, I don't, is he still around? Is he dangling uh, from a lamp? I don't know. Yet? I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't but... be surprised if he hadn't been bumped off by uh, <laughs> by one of the Kremlin's men. Yeah, 
So should we do the same? Or as you say, is what, the current... Bump people? No, well, no, elect a, elect a comedian or are our current crop of politicians well, funny I mean, enough anyway? I don't think comedians want to be, most of the time, uh, it's probably rare that they want to be, be uh, uh, politicians. I would say the closest to it would be Russell Brand, uh, but I think he's too far uh, to the left to... I, I, by the way... I find it very. I've only said Ricky Gervais and you know, but there's so many great comics out there in their moments are brilliant, are brilliant. And I've just got such an admiration for their sports <laughs> that uh, you know that I can see when someone is the people that I love best. And I can't name one right now because it's just too too difficult and politically wrong, but are the people who just have funny bones. For example, and, and those are my favourite types of comedian, like the most classic example is Tommy Cooper. Yeah. You, I just said his name and you laughed, yeah. right? <laughs> and so, and he would have terrible problems with people just go say, you know, he would go, oh, I don't feel very well. Actually, he did when he died. He died on stage. And he said... Everyone thought it was funny. Hilarious. He went, oh, I don't feel so good. And everyone went, ha, ha. And I think he had that problem in life. But he did. He, but he was just the. He was one of those people. You point the camera at him, and he's hilarious. He, he just loved to do that, didn't he? he was I was in a double act with a guy called Richard Glover, and you know I was the one making all, doing all the directing and the film, the editing. But I knew in my heart of hearts that he had it. Like when I pointed the camera at him, it was just funny looking at him through the lens. Whereas I had to sort of control my massive face. I wasn't, you know. If I was big and goofing about, that was fine. But big and goofing around isn't good for television, unless you're yeah. making a very stylized TV thing, which accommodates that kind of performance. But I would look through the camera and think, God, he's, he's just funny. Some people are just funny. Yeah. I think, yeah. I'm, I mean, that's I, just... I'm talking through the camera in real life. He's the right. No, I'm joking. <laughs> Fantastic. Look, John, a really nice... Chat, uh, oh, insight to kind of your life and what's potentially like to be a comedian. A well, pleasure chatting. Thank cheers. you. Thank you very much indeed to my guest for this week's show, who's John Hopkins of Big Face TV. And of course, thank you to you for listening. That was Mike Dilk of Relax Back UK. Thank you for listening and please join us again next time.